We've been working through the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, to come through chapter 3 now. And one of the reasons we've been working through this section is because this section is foundational for a lot of what the rest of the Bible teaches us. In some ways, not thinking, not understanding, not knowing what happens in Genesis causes us to be lost in the rest of Scripture. It's like watching a movie in the middle and all of a sudden you're like, wait, who's this person and why is this being said and what's going on? Or picking up a, a book and, and starting in chapter four and, and being confused because you didn't read the first few chapters. And this evening, I want to consider one of the ways in which the rest of the Bible points, especially to what we've been talking about recently in the life of Adam and Eve, in particular, the fall of Adam. So if you would take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to look at two passages of Scripture, Lord willing, this evening, in which the Apostle Paul points to Adam and helps us in light of who Adam is and what Adam did to understand more of who Christ is and what Christ did. So let's look at Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. In this section, we see that in some way, Adam's sin is connected to us. That our fate, what happens to us in this world, is tied in with Adam's sin. And Paul also keeps drawing a comparison between Adam and his sin and Christ and his obedience. And so let's see if we can understand the nature of our connection to Adam's sin and the parallel between that and Jesus Christ. Now, some look at a passage like this and say that our connection to Adam's sin is that he served as kind of the example to us. And so when we follow his example, we then share in his condemnation and guilt. And so this is a view that was taught thousands of years ago 
in the church over a thousand years ago. Someone who said where people are born innocent, and yet once they decide to follow Adam's sin, then they bear their own guilt. Now they themselves are sinners. But there are some teaching in this passage that clearly shows that can't be the case. One of which is verses 13 and 14, especially verse 14. It says, nevertheless, death, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. So Paul pretty, pretty clearly says, you don't have to have sinned like Adam sinned in order to have had the consequences of that sin. And one example of this that we'd recognize, that there are infants who die. The scripture would not tell us that they have somehow followed in Adam's sin by actually committing the same kinds of sin that Adam sinned. And yet they die. Perhaps some even die before they are born. And so the consequences of sin, death, don't just follow those who actually themselves sin. Instead, it seems pretty clear in this passage that death and condemnation are universal, not because we sin, but because Adam sinned. And let's see that. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we'll see a little bit the connection there between one man's sin and all sin. But it starts there with the emphasis of one man. And then verse 14, that it was the offense of Adam. Or verse 15, the transgression of the one, through that many died. Verse 17, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Back up to verse 16, that there was one transgression resulting in condemnation. We're down in verse 18, through one transgression there resulted condemnation. And finally, verse 19, for through one man's disobedience. And so it seems pretty clear here, Paul's not saying, you do what Adam did and then you will die. He's saying, you were condemned, you will die because of what Adam did. And so Adam's sin is the basis for condemnation and judgment. And certainly, one of the things we've got to think through is the parallel that Paul's bringing out in this passage. And so if we want to say, well, we die only because we ourselves sin, or we are condemned only because we ourselves sin, then how do we get life? Is Jesus the example of obedience? And we follow his example of obedience? That's not what the scripture teaches us. And so we have an emphasis here. Adam's sin results in our guilt and condemnation. Christ's obedience results in life and justification. And as well, it seems that there's a clear emphasis. It's not just that in some way we are corrupted now because of Adam's sin, but that we actually are guilty. Look back up at verse 12. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
And that all sinned is, is really parallel to the very beginning of that verse. One man sinned. And so it seems the emphasis throughout the section here is, is this. When Adam sinned, everyone sinned. Adam's sin was the sin of all. And how does that work? How is it that when Adam sinned, we all sinned? And there's two common views that, that people have tried to, to think of to understand how this works. One view says that when Adam sinned, we all sinned because physically we were all in Adam. Because everyone was born from Adam. And so in a sense, we were part of him. Our DNA ultimately goes back to him. And so when he sinned, we sinned because he is our physical father. Now, I think there's some problems with that view. One of those problems is wrestling with the idea of, so is every sin that Adam did something that we are guilty? And does that keep going down through all of our ancestors? And so we'd go back to your own mother and father and you're guilty for all of their sins and your grandparents and your great-grandparents because you were physically in them. And so does their sin come down to you? And scripture, I think, would tell us that's not how it works. That you're not condemned in that way for the sins of your father. Again, there's a parallel in this passage, right? Adam's sin to us, like Christ's obedience to us. When Christ obeyed, were we physically in Christ? Christ had no offspring. So, so no one could benefit from Christ's obedience if we're saying it's because Adam was our ancestor and therefore there was offspring. There's an additional problem with that view. Who is someone who came from Adam and yet had no sin? Jesus. And so Jesus was an Adam in that sense. He was physically an Adam. Otherwise, he's not human. If he's human, he came from Adam. And yet he didn't have sin. He was born without sin. And so it doesn't really seem that we can hold to that view from a biblical perspective. And so how does it work? How is it that Adam's sin is our sin? And I think the best way to understand this is to understand that Adam was our representative. He was our head. That in the garden, God set him up as the representative for all of creation and for all of humanity. And that representation only occurred while he was in the garden. And so he wasn't the representative after he left the garden. That's where we finished in chapter three. He's expelled from the garden. Now he's no longer serving as the representative of creation. And he's no longer serving as a representative of humanity. And so none of the rest of his sins affect us. It's just that one sin where he failed the test that God set up for him in the garden. And that sin is imputed or charged to our account. And that's the kind of language you see used in verse 13. That there is a kind of laying to account of sin. And verse 13 is saying, you actually had people who didn't have God's written law. Didn't have, in a sense, the command that Adam had. Don't eat of the tree. 
And so when they sinned, they weren't transgressing in the same way Adam was. And yet they still died. Because when Adam transgressed, sin was still laid to their account through what he had done. And that then gives us the parallel for Jesus Christ. That Christ is set up as a new Adam. He's set up as a new humanity. And that's partially why he's not guilty of Adam's sin. Part of the reason he's without sin is because of the virgin birth. That we actually inherit our sinful nature through procreation. That, that when we are conceived, we, we are now a new person and bear guilt. But Christ was not a new person. There's no new person that was formed in the incarnation. He was a pre-existing person. And so he had an impersonal human body in which he was placed. And the virgin birth allowed him to, to not have sinful nature. And yet he also didn't have the guilt of Adam's sin because he wasn't under Adam's representation. God set Christ up as a new head of humanity. And that's why you have this parallel throughout, that in Adam, this happens, and in Christ, this happens. And so Christ is now set up as a new humanity. And we ask, when, when do we get the sin and guilt from Adam? Is it sometime in life when we begin to act on it? And I think the answer from Scripture is the moment we are born. Because the language isn't we sinned and died, but Adam sinned and we die. And again, the parallel isn't we obey and live, but Christ obeyed and lived. And so it's something that happens to us immediately at conception. That when we are born, we are born in Adam. And therefore his sin counts for us. And we bear his guilt. And therefore, we face condemnation and death. In a sense, the parallel is true as well. When do we get Christ's righteousness? Because you might have felt a little bit of attention as we work through this text. Go down to, to verse 15. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So many died through Adam. Many received the gift of grace through Christ. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. From the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. On the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now that phrase helps us understand the next verse, verse 18. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. 
Now, that first phrase in verse 18, I think we can understand fairly well. Who suffers from Adam's sin? Everyone. And that seems pretty clear. Condemnation to all men. We all now bear guilt and we all now suffer from the curse and we die. But the second phrase might make you wonder a little bit. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So who gets justification? Everyone? Well, look back at verse 17 again. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. That you think about it this way. Everyone who's in Adam bears the guilt of Adam and bears the condemnation of Adam. And who's in Adam? Everyone's born into Adam. And so you are born with guilt and sin and condemnation. Everyone who's in Christ gets the obedience and righteousness of Christ and enjoys life through Christ. Who's in Christ? Everyone who's born in Christ, which means everyone who's born again. That it's, it's not the same people in both categories. Everyone starts here. Those who receive the gift of grace, those who through faith are born again are now no longer in Adam. They're now in Christ. And this is part of what we actually see in the Bible when we're told the old man died. Who you were in Adam, you are not that anymore because you're not in Adam anymore. When you're saved, you're now part of a new humanity. You are now in Christ. Christ is your head. Christ is your representative. And his life counts for yours, just like in the past, Adam's life counted for yours. And yet, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us further understanding of the connection between the two. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we find out when we will really experience the fullness of that life in Christ. So you would turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 20. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is dealing with false teaching that the Corinthians seem to be believing. In particular, they seem to be denying the fact that believers actually experience a physical bodily resurrection. That perhaps that's because they just tend to think the body is somehow lesser, somehow evil, or uh, the idea of a, a physical body in eternity just seems kind of repulsive to them in some capacity. And so they are denying the fact that Believers actually have a bodily resurrection. And Paul has been emphasizing, well, Jesus had a bodily resurrection. And since he had one, we have one. And if we don't have one, he didn't have one. And if he didn't have one, then really everything falls apart. And beginning in verse 20, he, he's now 
moving on to say, but he did rise again bodily. And since he rose again bodily, all believers will as well. So verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. And here first fruits is, is talking about in a sense, the, the first sign that tells you the rest is coming. It's kind of almost like a down payment. It's saying he rose from the dead and because he rose from the dead, we know everything else is happening. There's gonna be a full harvest of resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection tells us this is going to happen. And who will experience this? Well, here he just says those who are asleep, but look back up at verse 18. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And so when he's talking about those who are asleep, he's not saying everyone. He's not saying all those in Adam. He's saying those who are now in Christ, who have died, it's not really death because they're going to rise again. And so it's just sleep. And why do we know this? Well, that's where he ties it in with Adam. Verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Why by a man? Because again, Jesus was not just some kind of spiritual being. Jesus was a new humanity. He became man. And so because he became man, he now experiences throughout his humanity, he now has bodily form. And even in his resurrection, he continues to be the head of a new humanity and continues to have bodily form for all eternity. And so death is inevitable. As in Adam, all die. But in Christ, resurrection is also sure. Also in Christ, all will be made alive. That no one will miss resurrection in Christ. Everyone will experience this and they will share in the life of the risen Christ. But we don't get to share in that until we get our new bodies. And that's what Paul points to later in this chapter, down in verse 45, if you look there. Here, he's beginning to describe the goodness of the body and the need for a bodily resurrection. And in verse 44, he mentions the kind of body we are going to have in the resurrection. We're going to have what he says is a spiritual body. And I think probably the best way to understand it is this, a body that is designed to enjoy life in eternity with God. A body that's made for heaven. A body that's made for the life that we will be able to experience at that point in time. And in verse 45, he begins to contrast that with Adam and his body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And in many ways, that phrase, a living soul, is tied back in with what he said in verse 44, a kind of natural body. That Adam received a body for this earth. And then through sin, that body began to experience decay, which is what he points to in verse 48. 
sorry, verse 47. The first man is from the earth, earthy. He's from the dust. God made Adam from the dust. And what was part of the curse? Dust you are, and to dust you will return. That our current bodies are made for this world and will die. They will decay. And we understand that experience. And we understand that reality. That our bodies do not last. They cannot go on forever. They are earthy, dust bodies. And yet, the second man, verse 47, is from heaven. Or verse 45, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That Adam in his earthly body had God breathe life into his body. And, and Christ also had that kind of a body. But now Christ has a new body. Now Christ has a spiritual body. And he is going to give life to others so they can also enjoy this new spiritual body. And so in verse 47, the second man is from heaven. I think that's saying his body is one that's designed now for heaven. That Christ and his body is the same type of body we will have, which is what he says in verse 48 and 49. As is the earthy, so also are all those who are earthy. We have Adam's kind of body. We have bodies that experience the fall and the curse. That we live in this world ultimately headed toward death. But if we're in Christ, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. One day, we will enjoy the fullness of the life that Christ offers us with bodies that are able to experience all of God's goodness and to live for all eternity. That even that aspect of the curse will be done away with. So what should we think about this? First of all, we should be reminded that Paul seems pretty clear in his teaching. Without Adam, you don't have Christ. And so if you start to say the beginning of Genesis is just kind of myth, it's legend. There's no real Adam there. But there's no reason to say that Christ is also myth or legend. The scripture would tell us that both were real people, that God set both of them up as heads of a kind of human race. Which means, again, the foundations are so important. Secondly, that if we will not accept the idea that we are guilty for someone else's sin, then we cannot embrace the truth that we were rewarded for someone else's obedience. I mentioned a few weeks ago, perhaps you think it doesn't seem fair that God would set up Adam and have Adam's sin affect all of the rest of creation. As I mentioned then, remind you, in a sense, by saying that, you're just doing exactly the same sin that Adam did. 
God, I think I know better than you. I think I could be like God. I don't think I need to submit to what God set in place. And so you're demonstrating you would have done no better. But also, you're saying, I don't want Christ's obedience to count for me. I don't want his righteousness to count for me. And yet, by God's mercy and grace, yes, we are guilty because of Adam's sin. But yes, we are righteous because of Christ's obedience. And we need that kind of righteousness. That there's none of our works can overcome our guilt and our sin. That we need a righteousness outside of ourselves, And that righteousness is only found in Christ. And praise the Lord, that righteousness and Jesus' work of salvation is greater than Adam's sin and his work of condemnation. Hopefully you saw several times in that Romans 5 passage, much more than, much more than. Yes, there was this trespass that led to condemnation, but how much more? Will Christ's obedience lead to righteousness and life? Or at the end of that passage, yes, the law comes in so that sin would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounds even more. Finally, one of the truths that we have to take away from this is that salvation can only be found in Christ. There's only two heads There is Adam, and there is Christ. And everyone is born here. And the only hope that they have to avoid death is to be born again here. That there is salvation and no other name under heaven. That Jesus Christ alone is fit to be a savior because he was designated as God as a new head for a new humanity. We have the privilege of telling all of those who, like us, were born in Adam, that they too can experience life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ his work of righteousness and obedience. We thank you that we share in that not because we have obeyed, but only because he has. That we do not have to somehow work our way into your grace, but that we only obey because we've already received and experienced it. And Lord, I pray that we would understand this work of salvation. Lord, that we would be eager to explain this truth to others that we know. That they too face condemnation, judgment, and death. That they can know life. They can have resurrected bodies. And they can enjoy the fellowship with God that they were made to know. Amen. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.